0: Good morning. It is good to be together on this Sunday, and hopefully if you're here, it means that you're not currently under the weather. Ooh, that's fun. My attention span. Oh, there we go. Okay, cool. I had an opening that I planned to use for this morning where I was going to specifically say a bunch of words, and I ditched all of those words. Here's what I know as I come here this morning, and so do you. There are Sunday mornings, there are Monday mornings throughout the week, all week, where we will not believe in God like we ought to. And my guess is, even as we come this morning, that we might be coming into the worship service with the hope that God is going to show us something, that's going to do something miraculous, that is going to teach us something or motivate us or do something that gives us either a pep talk or maybe even a reason to believe in him. Today we're gonna spend a lot of time in this new series, Unexpected Gift, and there's a lot of scripture today. And years ago I was speaking at a chapel at a church on a hill, or not at a church on a hill, um, uh, school on a hill, I was speaking at a chapel, and while I was speaking there, I remember the week before I went and I listened to my friends speak at the chapel because I wanted to get a feel for what the school was like. And he was telling stories. And as he was telling stories, everyone in the stands and the bleachers were engaged. And as soon as he said, now open your Bibles, everyone disengaged and you could see it. I mean, this was thousands of high schoolers. And so I'm not making fun of high schoolers yet, but like the reality is this is what we're like. Once we say, hey, would you open the Word, it would be easier for us to disengage, which is ironic because we're at church together where we're going to be in God's Word. And so my request of you today is to not disengage because the Word of God is significantly more important than the words that I say unless I'm reading the text. Now, before we really jump into this sermon, I I want you, just for a moment, it's going to be an application later on in the service, I want you to remember a time that God did something miraculous in your life, and it strengthened your faith in him. I want you to remember a time that God did something miraculous in your life, and it strengthened your faith in him. And any time during the sermon, if that comes to mind, I want you to write it down, either in your notes, or in your Bible, or on your phone, or on one of the pieces of paper that are in front of you. So let's begin with a pretty familiar passage For those of us who attend here regularly, it's in the middle of Matthew 16, and even though we've studied the middle of Matthew 16 many, many times, for the most part, what we're gonna treat it today is context to Matthew 17, which we haven't studied as a church. So here's what it says, Matthew 16, Jesus is with his disciples, some miracles have taken place, he's with his disciples, and Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, verse 13 of chapter 16, and he asked his disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now for many chapters in the book of Matthew, the narrative is pointed out over and over again how the people in Jerusalem have not correctly identified who Jesus really is. But here we see Jesus asking first who others think that he is. And Peter, the spokesperson for the disciples, says they think you're a prophet, which was someone who would speak on God's behalf, who would tell others either the way to God or in a lot of cases what not to do. But Jesus wasn't telling others a possible way to God, he was and is God, and he was telling others about himself because as he says in John fourteen six, Jesus speaking of about himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 15 of Matthew 16, Jesus then asked, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are right. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Jesus asking Peter gets probably the most right on response he hears from anyone, the side of a demon. You are the Messiah, the promised one, the one the Hebrew scriptures testify about. Jesus, you the man. Jesus, you the Son of Man. Jesus, you're the God man. And while this answer is right, Peter definitely will have some moments where he, like all of us, don't act like Jesus is the Messiah. And yet Jesus, the Son, points to the Father as the reason that Peter and any of us really comprehend who Jesus is in the first place. He says in verse 18, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. A passage that has been greatly misunderstood, has been greatly misinterpreted by religions that want to give you some Jesus, but not only Jesus. They want to make a relationship with God more of a religion that requires your adhering to some rules in order to either prove your devotion to other people or to dictate how one behaves through rules, regulations, and guilt. What we believe that Jesus is implying here as he speaks to Peter and the disciples is that we could build or that he would build his church on a rock, but that rock is not an earthly person or a religion, but a testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ, and belief in such a message would set you free. It would be the vehicle in which our sins would be forgiven. It would be what the church of the living God, the people, not the steeple, would be identified by belief and faith in this message, that Jesus is not only a Christ, but their, our, possessive pronoun, our King, our Christ, our Lord. As Mike said last week, earlier on in his message, he said, our unexpected gift is a king that is long awaited and greatly needed. And for the disciples, they were beginning to understand that Jesus would, could, and should be that king. But like any of us, there was still a progression to understanding this, and probably a decent amount of stuff that we miss, misunderstand, and misinterpret. One of the most freeing things for me as a believer in Jesus, in case you were wondering, I'm a believer in Jesus. I think that was implied. I'm preaching. Okay. One of the most freeing things for me as a follower of Jesus is that it is not a religion where you have to feel like, or you never feel like you've done enough. I know many people who are always questioning if they were good enough or moral enough or devout enough. Our salvation is not based on how good we are, but faith in the one who is good. And the disciples were beginning to get this message of grace found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus told his disciples to keep this moment and this message to themselves, to not share it with others. Probably not the application that we have in 2022. There was a reason behind this and we'll see why. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go on to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Woo! Talk about a wonderful verse. Jesus, the gospel personified, was explaining the good news of the gospel to his disciples, the good news that Jesus would die. That doesn't seem like good news. The good news that God would trade his life for the sins of mankind. Okay, now it's getting a little gooder. The good news that Jesus would be resurrected from the dead. The good news that Jesus is king and he would rule and reign for eternity. This good news was being told to the disciples who were beginning to get it. Were beginning to recognize this unexpected gift. But then there's Peter's response. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Now, in the wonderful show from the late 60s known as Get Smart, Agent 86, Maxwell Smart's catchphrase missed it by that much. So close, Peter, but you're missing the basic fact that this has to happen. Like Thanos, it is inevitable. Okay, so that was for people that get Get Smart, that is for people that get Marvel. MCO. Okay. Because if it doesn't take place, if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, we are still in our sins, church. Mankind is without a lifeline because we are unable to flee from sin. Let me say that again. Let me be clear with you. I don't want to lie to you in church. You are unable to flee from sin. Who sinned this week? Most of you and some liars. So all of you. We are unable to stay pure, church. We're unable to do enough good to make up for our bad. We have a pride problem, church, which leads to death. And we are unable to save ourselves. And this is the way God chose to do this by trading his life for ours. And by faith, we believe that Jesus, in all his glory, is the Messiah, and that is how he gathers his church, by belief in this message, not by dressing a certain way, listening to a certain type of music, or or using made-up cuss words. That is not how he draws his people. He draws his people by belief in the message that he is the Christ. But Peter doesn't want this Thing about as Jesus is describing that he would have to go and be killed. He doesn't want this to happen to his rabbi. Peter thinks he can protect him from this. And yet, God with skin, Jesus, didn't want to be protected. He wants to be exalted. He wants to be high and lifted up like the bronze snake sculpture in the desert. Jesus would be lifted high upon the cross, and for those who would look to him, they would be forgiven. They would be freed from death. They would be given eternal life in Jesus Christ. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in the mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. Peter went from being renamed Peter, which meant little pebble, who understood that Jesus was the Messiah, to being referred to as Satan. (laughs) This isn't Jesus teasing Peter. Oh, you're like Satan. No, this is Jesus calling out who would influence Peter to attempt to stop what God was doing. But Peter's zeal, it's kind of commendable. Plus, Matthew writes right here that Peter took Jesus aside as if not to do this publicly in front of the other disciples to embarrass, but to say, Jesus, there must be another way. I wonder, church, If in our zeal, I wonder if I or you ever rebuke God for a way that we think he ought to be, when his plan, his work, his understanding of everything in the micro and the macro is so much more sufficient than yours or mine, I wonder if we ever rebuke God. Verse 24, then Jesus says to his disciples, something's pretty well known. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, Elon? Yet forfeit their soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You're looking for Elon, it doesn't say that. Just, sorry. Jesus then utters a very well-known saying of his. That if you want to be his disciple, if you want to be his disciplined pupil, you'll have to deny yourself. You'll have to deny your agenda. You'll have to deny your priorities. You'll have to deny your own sovereignty and trust and obey God's will, his word, and his way. To say it again, God must overrule you in order to be his disciple. We are called to follow him. He doesn't follow us. Because as he implies that everything you can work for in the world, everything you can gain or achieve in this world will never satisfy. Everything we attempt to achieve in this life is costly. And Jesus contrasts that while we give up our lives for material possessions all the time, right? Who worked 40 to 60 hours this week? Oh, Bay Area. Who worked 80 hours this week for material possessions, for a better retirement for better opportunity to make sure that when the rainy day comes, you're okay. And what Jesus is saying is that if you give up your life for these material possessions, they will never satisfy like giving up your life in service to Jesus. While also being as costly as it comes to follow Jesus, Jesus is making the point that it's worth it. So why give up your soul for this world rather than give up your life over to the one who has time and time again proven that he knows not only what is best for us, but what brings glory to his name. Verse 27, Jesus says, for the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Now, Jesus is pointing towards eternity, and the very important choice one makes as far as living for themselves and the enticing things of this world, or deciding and following Jesus with our lives, seeing God's glory as essential to your life and to your existence. But then he says something that I know that we can misinterpret, and I know that not all of us read through a gospel lens, or as Mike called it last week, a Christocentric lens Jesus says he, God the Father, will reward each person for what they have done. First off, this has nothing to do with salvation and justification. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved and made right with God. It is only through that. But some have what they would call a mansion theology, which I don't personally have. But I can get around the idea that God can and does reward what we do as we follow him in this life, but not as a way of getting to heaven, but as a reminder that what we do matters in this life. And so if we believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ, church, if you identify with the message that Jesus is the Messiah, if you believe unto the Lord Jesus, we then live unto the Lord Jesus So I assume from the fact that God is pointing, uh, as pointed to as the great gift giver, that yes, no gift is better than salvation found in grace, but I also think perhaps he rewards us in the next life those things we did when no one was looking in this life. Those opportunities where we had to refuse Jesus's lordship when no one was watching. And yet, because what we believe dictates how we behave in secret, we will be rewarded through his good pleasure. Now, scripture isn't as clear as we think it is when it comes to this. We tend to make literal things, or we see things as literal, we want things to be literal, and then things we can't understand, we kind of just assume in the scriptures that they're allegory. But based on emphasis in scripture, I'd say that how we live matters. It just doesn't justify us like a legalist believes. Verse 28. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here, Jesus says, will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus now points to what is about to happen, not in end times, but soon as he says that some will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. For many, they attempt to squint their eyes and force this into an end times saying, but I think it's specifically pointing to what Matthew is about to document in just a moment. It's known as the transfiguration. When we studied the book of John for six and a half hundred years, We never address the transfiguration, because unlike the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John does not address it specifically, which is ironic, because John was actually there. But here's what I'm talking about when we talk about the transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse 1. All of that was context. You're welcome. Verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Six days later, almost a week later, after this discussion with the disciples regarding following him, he then leads James and John, the brothers, known as the sons of thunder and Peter, up a mountain. Now, many speculate which mountain. And the reality is, no one really knows for sure which mountain this actually took place on. For sure. You know why? Because the mountain's not the point. But God was going to do something tremendous on this mountain, even if everyone didn't necessarily understand it. Verse two, this is what we get for the transfiguration. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. All right, you guys all got it? He was transfigured. No, it basically gives us nothing. So the transfiguration takes place, which is this bright light coming off of Jesus. Now transfigured, the word, it means changed. To have your appearance changed is another way of reading this. In the Greek word, or in the Greek, the word looks a lot like the word we have, which is metamorphosis. Now, did Jesus transform? Did he have some spiritual growing to do? Did he need to look more like himself? Did he metamorphosize? Yes and no. I wouldn't say he changed, but his appearance to the disciples did the way James and John and Peter saw Jesus in this moment changed. Possibly for the first time, they saw Jesus in his glory. And after being told plainly that the plan was for Jesus to go to the cross and to die, no matter if Jesus had also pointed out, I will be raised to life, they were struggling with the thought of their rabbi going to death. But this transfiguration This glory of Jesus being put on display made it so the disciples could see a greater picture of who Jesus really is. Church, that's what we want to do every week. We want you to have a greater picture of who Jesus is. We want you to see who Jesus is in all his glory. But not only was this visual marker of Jesus' glory seen in this radiant light coming from Jesus, but look at the next verse. It says, verse 3, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Say, what? Well, this just became intense, crazy, and unbelievable if you weren't there. But let's look at what actually took place. They're on this mountaintop where Jesus' appearance has been transfigured now, and not only is Jesus standing there, but the bodily resurrected forms of both Moses and Elijah, two very important figures in the Old Testament who lived many, many, many years prior to this moment, are now standing there on the mountain with Jesus, talking with him, Matthew writes. Why is this significant? Well, two reasons. Well, three I'll share three because I really like to make things obvious. First one, it's freaking Moses and Elijah. These aren't dudes in costumes that they got them from the spirit store. I'm Moses. This is the true Moses. Let my people go, that Moses. And Elijah, the one called who called fire down from God on the altar, the chariots of fire, the whirlwind that took Elijah to heaven. These two guys are standing there with Jesus. But let's get it straight. Jesus isn't asking them for their autographs, church. These two men, who represent two very important things for us. One, Moses was the writer of the Pentateuch, the first five uh, letters in the Old Testament, and Elijah, one of, if not the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, represent the Hebrew scriptures. They represent the law. They represent everything that was written until the New Testament and the New Covenant, which began with Jesus in the Incarnation, being born to Mary. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Of course, Peter says this. If you wish, I will put up three easy ups. No, I will put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, Now, someone has said that there were two kinds of speakers, those who have to say something, or those who have something to say, and those who have to say something. Peter was someone who just had to say something. He blurted out whatever came to mind without stopping to think whether it made sense or not, but he wanted to memorialize what was happening, as to put all three of these heroes of the faith together with their own shelters But that wasn't the purpose of them being together. We'll get to that in just a moment. Now, these two men, Elijah and Moses, also represent not only the Old Testament, they represent the two ways that any of us will go on to be in eternity with God. For Moses, he died before the Promised Land with the Israelites after 40 years of wandering in the desert. He died of, I guess, what you would call natural causes. For Elijah, he was caught up in a whirlwind and taken to heaven, as we read in 2 Kings. So he never actually died the way that Moses did. And this represents how you and I, how we will experience eternity with God one day. Either we will breathe our last breath, and in an instant, we will be with God in eternity. Or we will experience Jesus coming back and being caught up with him. As Paul writes in the book we've been studying as a church in, small, in community groups throughout the, on Wednesdays, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's pretty important. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in him. After that, he who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will be with the Lord forever. And so you have Moses and you have Elijah, two heroes in the faith that are so recognizable, the disciples don't even question who it is. They represent the Hebrew scriptures. The prophets and the law, they also represent the two ways in which we will be ushered into an eternity with God. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. The disciples heard the voice of God the Father speaking as he did at the beginning of Jesus' ministry at Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And now he adds, listen to him. Listen to him, disciples. Understand that what Jesus says goes. Not that he's done away with the law, but that Jesus has fulfilled it. As Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And so as Christians, church, if you're here and you're sitting in these pews and you're listening to the truth of the word, we don't do away with the Old Testament. We don't treat it like an old phone that we discard. We marvel in how beautiful it is that God prepared the way for Jesus to come and God's glorious plan was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That through grace, through the word, and through the gospel personified, we can come into right relationship with God himself. And this is the story from Genesis to Malachi. This is the story from Matthew to Revelation. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. What a natural reaction to hearing God's voice. To fall down and be terrified. This might actually be why I tend to question when someone says they heard the audible voice of God somehow. Because their response is not to be afraid or terrified, but as if they expected to hear his voice. Because they're that plugged in? More plugged in than the disciples that were on the mountain with Jesus Christ? These disciples who were not only walking with Jesus, but had just seen Moses and Elijah in their resurrected bodies, because scripture doesn't treat them as decayed zombies, and not only saw them, they recognized them, and after all of that miraculousness, I'm not sure if that's a word, then they hear the actual voice of God, and how do they respond? They fall down on their face in fear, in reverence in terror. But Jesus comes and says, do not be afraid. And when the disciples looked, they saw only Jesus. So you have three heroes of the faith. These three men who God used mightily that Peter wanted to be on the same level. But God was making known that Jesus, he's the one that the disciples should listen to now. Those other two men and what they represented were great. But Jesus, he's the point. He's the fulfillment. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, and everything that was made was made through, for, and by him. So let me read what the scriptures say about this Jesus, and I'm going to do it in my best preacher voice. The Son is the image of the... Well, I have to hold the Bible. The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Then the writer of Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance. Of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had purif- provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And then John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, the John who is on this mountain, writes In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then skip 10 verses to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. There's a reason, church, that we don't really ever stray too far from Jesus when we teach anything here at COV. You know why? Because it's all about Jesus. Now, does that mean we walk down the street and we repeat Jesus' name to get people's attention? Jesus! No, you look ridiculous! Does that mean we invite you into our home and then as you walk in, we lock the doors behind you and tell you to repent and be baptized? No. But our motivation... Our ministry and our minds are set on praying that people would come to Christ and would want to be available and that we would want to be available with an answer for the hope that we have because Jesus, he's that important. And that is what this transfiguration is all about. Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah before he went up the mountain. And he's right, but he's not only an earthly king. He is the eternal king who rules and reigns over the kingdom of God. And when you or I trust Jesus, and I hope that you would, at his word and believe that he is who he says that he is, we are given eternal life. We are adopted into his family. We are ushered into the kingdom of God where there is a king who reigns and his name is Jesus. And this transfiguration, this incredible miracle that these disciples got to personally witness, while probably more than they really could grasp or understand at the time, would would be more evidence that Jesus, who claimed to be the Savior of mankind, even prior to the resurrection, and something they could go back to, when the death of their Lord was more than they could bear, and before he resurrected, just like he said that he would. Peter points out this in a second letter as he's writing to the church way later on. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus in power, but we were witnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven and we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter, who could testify to this? And later on in the gospel accounts, it is evident that Peter, while expressing something that only James John and him witnessed, Peter had moments of doubt, and even denied Christ three times after Jesus' arrest. But Peter, who would eventually be restored, which we read about and have studied towards the end of the book of John, we see Peter asked three times by Jesus if he loves him, which Peter does. (coughs) Excuse me. And so Jesus tells him to feed and care for the sheep the church of the living God, and I am a sheep. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Do not tell anyone. Don't tell anyone about what you just saw, disciples. Until he rises from the dead. Why? Because the resurrection proves that Jesus is Lord. It's the ultimate mic drop. It is what we as believers in Jesus Christ can go back to. It is what we remember. It is is why there are Sundays when I come here and I'm focused on myself and I'm focused on some things that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. That I can go back to the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, not only can I be passionate. Not only can I be excited. But I can get through today. Because Jesus lives, and he rose, and because of him, because I believe in him, even though one day I will die, I will live. So I'd like to pose this question. If the apostles, these disciples of Jesus Christ himself, who walked with Jesus for over three years, didn't fully comprehend who he really was and is, and it took the resurrection from the dead and the Holy Spirit's intervention for eyes to truly be open to who Jesus is, What makes you or I different than them? See, we live in a post-resurrection world. And so I'd like us to start to think about what a big deal it is that Jesus has risen from the dead, even if we don't see him like these disciples did. So let me close with this. John 20, verses 24 through 28. Now Thomas, poor Thomas. Also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Church, I wonder what we replace that with. Well, unless he gives me this, or unless he does this, or unless this family member is okay, or unless, unless I'm healthy, wealthy, and whatever, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God, he worshiped. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He's talking about us, church. Blessed are we who have not seen him, who have not walked with him physically, but blessed are we who live in a post-resurrection world. In a world with so much evidence of the resurrection, I believe it takes more faith to believe that he didn't rise than it takes to believe that he actually did. We have been gifted the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, if we've trusted in Jesus to even help with our unbelief, to point us to the resurrected Christ. And as Peter says in his first letter to the church, take this personally, church, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want you to think about that. And my hope is it's Christmas season. We have Christmas decorations. Thank you, Robin and others who helped do this. But we're not celebrating Santa Claus, yo. We're not celebrating that this is the time of year that my family watches Elf we're celebrating the fact that God in his glorious plan decided to come into our history and live among us and was dependent upon his own creation as a baby. I love my baby Finley, but she's kind of (laughs) useless. She kind of can't do anything. I was like, get a job. No, I haven't said that to her yet, but like she can't really do much. And yet Jesus came as a baby and was dependent upon his creation and he grew up and he was tempted and he dealt with stuff that we deal with and he lived the perfect life that we can't live and he died the death that we all deserve to die and then he physically rose from the dead and there was a day where each of you heard about this truth and there was a glorious God who made it so you could understand what that actually meant. Praise be to him, the king. So here's my application for you. I want you to write down a time that God did something miraculous in your life which strengthened your faith. I want you to write down that time that God did something miraculous in your life which strengthened your faith. And I want you to hold on to whatever that is. And I want you to look at that this Christmas season. And I want you to be reminded that God is not far from any of us. And that he loves us and he's with us. And he proved that, not just by coming as a baby, not just by dying on a cross, but by physically rising from the dead. Hallelujah. Worship team, you can come on up. And we're gonna respond. We're gonna respond in musical worship. We're gonna respond by singing praises to God's name and being reminded that he has given us a gift in his gracious life, in his gracious death, in his gracious Resurrection, and in his grace to help any of us actually understand what that means. And so I pray that we'd live like he is king, that we'd be changed by the truth of his word, that we would realize that this transfiguration made a difference so we could see who Jesus truly is. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for a story that I've read over a lot. And I thank you for the ways that You made some of it more obvious to me today than it's ever been. God, I pray that we'd leave this place being reminded that you do miracles. You did a miracle when any of us believed you and trusted you. You did a miracle because our sins were forgiven because of that belief, because you had given us the ability to see you for who you are. God, may we live as if you are true and real. May we live as if you're resurrected. May we live as if you were going to continue to do miracles. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.